I once listened to a talk on um, how to prepare a sermon. And what they said was that you should start each sermon with a joke. I think the idea is that it helps you to connect with the congregation. Well, as you know, I don't generally heed that particular piece of advice. But this morning I'm going to make an exception. And I'm going to start not with one or even two, but three jokes. So if you're ready, two hats were hanging on a hat rack in the hallway. One hat said to the other, you stay here, I'll go on ahead. (laughs) Oh, they get worse. You know, I tried really hard, but I just couldn't remember how to throw a boomerang. But then it came back to me. (laughs) And finally, did you hear about the spoilt little girl who screamed and shouted for a horse? She got a little... (laughs) 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 Never mind. (laughs) All right, that's enough. You can have too much fun. Well, apart from illustrating why perhaps I don't tell jokes, is there a point to all of this? Well, sort of, yes. You see, the humor of these jokes, such as there was or is, depends on the fact that some words and phrases in English can have more than one meaning. And I won't insult your intelligence by telling you how that works in terms of these jokes, but you get the idea. Sometimes the fact that a word can have more than one meaning it can also be a useful rhetorical tool. It can help convey meaning at different levels. And we're going to look at an example of that this morning. So if you were here a few weeks ago when I spoke, and assuming you can remember what I said, you'll know where I'm going with this. So we're going to be looking again this morning at the first verses of John's Gospel. So if you were here then, this uh, next few minutes will be a bit of a recap for you. And if you weren't, it's a chance for me to bring you up to speed. So let's start by reading the prologue of John's Gospels. That's the first 18 verses of John chapter 1. And I'm reading from the English Standard Version. In the beginning was the Word. And the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. In him was life, and the life was the light of men. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. There was a man sent from God whose name was John. He came as a witness to bear witness about the light, that all might believe through him. He was not the light, but came to bear witness about the light. The true light, which gives light to everyone, was coming into the world. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, yet the world did not know him. He came to his own, and his own people did not receive him. But to all who did receive him, and who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God, who are born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we have seen his glory glory as of the only son from the father full of grace and truth john bore witness about him and cried out this is he of whom i said he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me for from his fullness we have all received grace upon grace 
For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God. The only God who is at the Father's side, he has made him known. It's a wonderful passage. Before we start to unpack it a bit this morning, we're going to have a little bit of audience participation. We're going to play a little, bit of a little game here. I'm going to read you the first line of a book, and you've got to tell me the name of the book and the author. So most of these are quite famous, so I'm sure you'll get them. And I should say that I haven't read all these books, just in case you think I'm more literary than I am. It is a truth universally acknowledged that a single man in possession of a good fortune must be in want of a wife. Excellent. All happy families are alike. Each unhappy family is unhappy in its own way. I know some of you read it. I know you have. <laughs> That's Leo Tolstoy and Karenina. Okay, some of this, this, this one might be a bit harder, though I'm sure, again, some of you have read it. July had been blown out like a candle by a biting wind that ushered in a leaden August sky. It's on television at the moment, I think. Gerald Durrell, My Family and Other Animals, one of my favourites. Mr. and Mrs. Dursley of number four, Privet Drive, were proud to say <laughs> they were perfectly normal, thank you very much. Yes, indeed. And a well-known one to finish. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It certainly is. Well done. They're great, aren't they? they? They make you want to read more. A good author knows that he's just got a few lines to make an impression, to draw you in, to set the tone of the rest of the book. And I think that John knew that very well. Personally, I think his opening line is up there with the very best. In the beginning was the word. Now, John wrote his account about um, Jesus towards the end of the first century AD. It was the last of the four Gospels to be written. And I think you can be sure that he's read the other um, three accounts by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He's given a lot of thought to what he's going to write and how he's going to structure his account. And in particular, he's thought about those crucial first few sentences. So when we read, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God, we can be sure there was nothing arbitrary or random about his choice of words, which is a good thing. Because although they make a very dramatic opening, they are, as we've noted before, a little bit strange. What is the word? In the beginning was the word. Now, of course, most of us have read on a bit, and we know that when John says word, what he means is Jesus. So we make the substitution. In the beginning was Jesus, and Jesus was with God, and Jesus was God. And it all makes sense. And with that substitution, uh, it isn't strange anymore. But the fact is, that isn't what John wrote. So we have to ask why. Why this rather strange formulation? And to understand that, we have to take ourselves back a couple of thousand years to first century Ephesus, where John was writing. And as we do that, we find ourselves in a Greek city, which is um, in, now in Turkey. And to a church that was a mixture of Jews and of Gentiles. There were probably several languages spoken in that church, but the common language would have been Greek. And it was in Greek that John wrote his gospel. And what we find is that the Greek word for word is actually rich in meaning, both for those with a background in Greek culture 
and for those whose culture was Jewish. The Greek word for word is logos. And for the Greeks, one of the ideas associated with the logos was the reason behind the universe, the thing that brought order out of the chaos. And last time we explored how John took that meaning and showed the Greeks how they were partly correct in their understanding. There was indeed a reason behind the universe, but it wasn't a thing, but a person. It was the second person of the triune God that created the universe and therefore gave meaning to our existence. Our lives have purpose when we are reconciled to God through Jesus and fulfill our destiny to walk with him and live with him both now and forever. So John used the word logos here quite deliberately to create a bridge that would help him to reach out to those with a Greek cultural background and to show them the truth was in Jesus. But remarkably, the word logos was also rich in meaning for the Jews. Now the Old Testament, which of course was the whole of the Bible for the Jews, was translated into Greek, a translation known as the Septuagint. This was done between about 300 and 100 BC. And this was the commonly used translation of the day. Jesus and the disciples all used it. And so it was used by Jews as well as native Greek speakers. So when Jews heard the word logos, they would have associated it with places in the Old Testament where the same word was used. And that's what we're going to explore today. Because John was using the same trick here as he used for the Greeks. He took a word that was pregnant with meaning for the Jews and he used it as a bridge to connect with them. To say, yes, you're right in your understanding of the meaning of the Logos, but not completely right. Let me show you how much greater the real meaning is. And if you read John's Gospel and if you read the other letters that he wrote, you'll see this is a man who loved Jesus, who loved the church. Love was what drove him, what motivated him, what got him up in the morning. And his passion was that other people would know the love of God in the same way that he did. And that is why he wrote his gospel. So that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you might have life in his name. That's what John wanted, and that's what we want. So as we look at John, how John used the word logos to lift up the person of Jesus before his Jewish audience, I hope that we will also see Jesus lifted up and enlarged in our hearts and minds today. So what I want us to try and do, is to, uh, to start, is to read this passage as if we were first century Jews. And obviously that's a bit speculative, but we can give it a go. So one thing we can be sure about is that Jews really knew their scriptures very thoroughly, and we're going to use that fact. So let's start at verse 1 and work our way through. In the beginning was the Word, the Logos. Now for the Jews, the Logos was the word used throughout the scripture for the Word of God. The translation of the Hebrew, the Dabar Yahweh. So when John starts, in the beginning was the Logos, the Jews would have linked straight away back into Genesis chapter 1. In the beginning, God. They would have been very comfortable with the identification of the word of God with God. So our starting point is quite well defined. And then the Logos was with God and the Logos was God. Now I think that this would have started to sound alarm bells. Uh, for the Jews, because it sounds like John is talking about two different things as being God. And the next phrase would have confirmed that. He was with God in the beginning. Who was this he who was both with God and was God? But let's just assume for the moment that they're happy to let this lie and to move on. So 
So then John writes, All things were made through him, the Logos, and without him was not anything made that was made. Well, there's no problem here, because this goes straight back to Psalm 33.6, which says, By the Logos the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. So that was almost a direct quote. Then verse 4, In him, the Logos, was life, and the life was the light of men. Well, again, this is fine. It brings to mind Deuteronomy 32, 47. For is no empty Logos for you, but your very life. And by this Logos, you shall live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. Verse 5, the light shines in the darkness, and the darkness not, has not overcome it. Well, the light here is the Logos, and again, refers back to Jewish scripture. Psalm 119, 105, your word, your Logos, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So it seems clear that as John is setting out his opening paragraph, he is saying to his Jewish readers, the Logos I'm talking about here is one and the same as the Logos of the Scripture, the Dabba Yahweh, or the Word of God. So with that in mind, I want to go back and have a look at some of the times the word Logos was used in the Jewish Scripture. And as we do, what we find is by far the most common usage is in sentences such as, and then the word of God came to Moses, or to Isaiah, or whoever. And that's significant, and we'll come back to that later. But there are a collection of other verses, some of which I've just related, that speak of the word of God as being something, or doing something, as if it had a power, or even a personality of its own. Psalm 33, 6, I've mentioned, By the Logos the heavens were made, their starry host by the breath of his mouth. So the Logos is powerful and creative. Deuteronomy 32, 47. For it is no empty Logos for you, but your very life. And by this Logos you shall live. So the Logos is the source of life. Psalm 190, Your word, your Logos, is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. So the Logos is a light in the darkness. Psalm 107.20 He sent out his Logos and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. So the Logos both heals and delivers. Then we have Isaiah 55.10.11 For as the rain and the snow come down from heaven, but do not return there but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that which I purpose, and succeed in that for which I sent it. So the word here is something that is sent from God for a purpose. It will accomplish that thing for which it was sent. So it seems to me that John is very intentionally trying to make his, get his readers to make these connections before he moves on into his next paragraphs. Now I want you to try and hold some of those connections um, for a moment because uh, before we move on, because for a moment what I want to do is sort of step aside and make a bit of a diversion. So if you like, this next section is in brackets. When we decided in the autumn that we wanted to do a series looking at the Word and the Spirit, I thought that the obvious place to go and look was in John 1, because it speaks explicitly about the Word. But what we had in mind for the series was the Bible um, as the written Word of God. And clearly that isn't what John is speaking about here in John 1. You see, you can't make the substitution word equals Bible in John 1 and have it make sense. We can't say the Bible is God. We can't say the Bible created the universe. And yet, 
throughout the Old Testament, the most common use of the word logos is to describe God's spoken and subsequently written word to his people. It was God's word as it was written down that became the scriptures. All scripture we read in Timothy is God-breathed. It comes from the mouth of God. So it's all God's word. So though it would be wrong to say that John was speaking about the Bible here in John 1, which is why I'm putting this bit into brackets, it is nevertheless perfectly proper for us to look at the verses we've just looked about that describe the word um, as describing the written word of God. So that's what I want to take a few moments just to do now. So if you think back to these, through these verses, you can see the word logos, the, the word of God, was described as something creative, fruitful, powerful. It was authoritative, intentional. It brought with it light and life and joy, healing and deliverance. Just to refresh your memory on some of those. By the word of the Lord, the heavens were made. He sent out his word and healed them and delivered them from their destruction. My word that goes out from my mouth shall not return to me empty, but shall accomplish that for which I purpose. For it is no empty word for you, but your very life. Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. Your words became to me a joy. The overall sense you get from these verses is the word of God is something living. It heals, creates, provides, accomplishes purposes. It brings light and life and joy. And when we think of the word of the Bible as the word of God, these are the associations that we should be making. As we looked at the word last year, we... um, we're reminded that the Bible can be review, uh, viewed as a reliable source of historical information. It can be read as a story. It's a book that teaches about God's truth, that it tells us about God's plan and purpose for us. And it is all of these things. But if we miss, leave it there, we miss something of what makes the Bible truly unique amongst all the books of the world. When we think of the Bible as the word, when we think of the Word of God, we should make the same associations that the Jews in Ephesus would have done. We should remember that the word of God is powerful and effective. It's something alive and active. Now, we've quoted Hebrews uh, 4.12 a number of times, so hopefully it will be coming to your minds that the word of God is living and active, sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing to the division of soul and spirit, of joints and marrow, and discerning the thoughts and intentions of the heart. The same Holy Spirit that caused the words of our Bible to be written is still alive and active now. And as the Bible is read, the same Holy Spirit continues to speak. And as God speaks, then things happen. Through the word of God, faith comes and lives are changed. People are restored to God. Through the word comes healing and deliverance. Through the word, there is power to combat the enemy. In Ephesians The word is likened to a sword, so the word is a powerful weapon. Jesus likens it to seeds that um, when they take root, bear fruit, so the word is fruitful. He also said that man shall live by every word that comes from the mouth of God, so the word is something that sustains us. We often stress the need to read the Bible, but we should never read it just as a book to be studied. We should read it with an expectancy that as we read it, God will speak. And that as he speaks, things will happen, that we will be challenged, shaped and fed, that situations will be changed, life will come, captives will be set free, the lame will walk and the blind will see. So as we read, ask the Holy Spirit to bring life to the words we read. There's nothing mystical or magical about the Bible, but as the Holy Spirit works, 
it becomes alive. It becomes creative, fruitful, powerful and effective. I want to encourage you, have this expectation as you read. Ask the Holy Spirit to make it so. And that is important. And I want you to hold on to that. But as I say, it isn't what John was speaking about. So I want to close off the brackets there and we're going to go back into John. So John has set the stage. He's brought to mind this image of the Logos um, uh, from the Jewish scriptures. Then in verse 6, the, um, the, uh, the tone suddenly changes. It's, it's almost a crashing change. Yes. We move from lofty talk about the eternal Logos, and then we come right down to earth. John starts to talk about another man called John, and about the world, and about people. And it's in this very human context that we are told the Word came. The Word became flesh and lived on earth. This Logos, Word of God, creator, healer, life giver, has become a human being. Now for some Jews this is as far as they would have got. The alarm bells that ring back in verse 1 are now blaring at full volume. It was blasphemous to say that man could be God. There was no way that the Dabba Yahweh of the scriptures could be identified with a man. And we know that for many Jews, this was the end of the matter. Paul wrote that he preached Christ and him crucified, a foolishness to the Greeks and a stumbling block to the Jews. So for some, this was the end of the road. But for those that stayed with him, John goes on in his gospel to show that Jesus Christ was indeed the Logos of the scriptures. And we see through the selection of miracles that John chooses, he will demonstrate the creative power of Jesus. For example, in making water out of wine. His lordship over creation, as in when he walked on the water. The fact that he is a provider in feeding the 5,000. That he's a healer. We see that in many miracles. Um, He's the bringer of light, as exemplified in the healing of the blind man. He's the bringer of life, as he showed when he raised Lazarus from the dead. And that's John's project for the rest of his gospel. But for now, I just want to focus in a little more detail on just three of the ways in which John demonstrated that the Logos of the Jewish scripture found fulfillment in Jesus. Okay, so as I've already said, if you go through the Old Testament and look for all the occasions when the word Logos is used, what you'll find is that almost all the references are identical, more or less. One typical example is Isaiah 38.4, where we read, Then the word of the Lord came to Isaiah. Elsewhere, we'll read that then the word of the Lord came to Abraham, or to Moses, or to Jeremiah, and so on. Over and over again, we read, Then the word of the Lord came to his people. From Genesis through to Malachi, the word of the Lord came. This is what we read in Hebrews chapter 1. Long ago, and in many times, in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. The word of the Lord came. But then the writer of Hebrews goes on on to say, But in these last days he has spoken to us by his Son, whom he appointed the heir of all things, through whom he also created the world. Notice the parallels here with John 1. He is the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. In the Old Testament, the word of the Lord came through the prophets. But now the word of the Lord has come by his Son. The word who is the creator and sustainer of the world. The word who is the exact imprint of the nature of God. This word has come. And that's exactly the link 
John is wanting his readers to make. That the word, the Logos of God, that came to his people so many times through the Old Testament, the Dabba Yahweh, with all its associations of creator, sustainer, healer, deliverer, light and life, this word has now come. Verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us. The Dabba Yahweh is revealed as Jesus of Nazareth, the Logos of God, has come to his people. And this really is the most profound mystery of the gospel. That God himself became man. That Jesus was both fully human and fully divine. If we can somehow grasp hold of this, then everything else falls into place. If Jesus, Nazareth, if Jesus of Nazareth was really the eternal creator God, then healing the sick, feeding the 5,000 with just a picnic lunch, walking on the water, these are just the sorts of things you would expect to see. They're perfectly natural actions for such a being. Even rising from the dead, well, how could death hope to keep hold of the eternal Son of God? And that's John's purpose throughout his gospel, not to just to record the amazing things that Jesus said and did, but to show they all made complete sense and could only make any sense if Jesus was who he claimed to be, the Son of God. So that's the first point I want to emphasize, that the word of God has come, and it has come in the person of Jesus, God made man. And the second point is this, the word came for a purpose, and it's accomplished that purpose. Just cast your mind back a bit to the passage I read from Isaiah earlier. For as the rain and snow come down from heaven and do not return there, but water the earth, making it bring forth and sprout, giving seed to the sower and bread to the eater, so shall my word be that goes out from my mouth. It shall not return to me empty, but it shall accomplish that for which I purpose and shall succeed in that for which I sent it. The word... Uh, the word that comes from God will accomplish the purpose for which it was sent. These words of Isaiah were prophetic, and they point to Jesus. And as John links the word, or logos, to Jesus, so he starts to make that link. And as he goes through his gospel, he will make it more explicit. So in John 6.36, we read, uh, John records Jesus saying to himself, For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. Chapter 5, 36, he reminds us that Jesus said, The very works I am doing are the works the Father has given me to accomplish. So Jesus' life was a fulfillment of Isaiah 55, 11. And in his gospel, John records some of the works Jesus did in the accomplishment of the purpose for which he was sent. And the word continued to accomplish its purpose even through to his death. So you recall that in the Garden of Gethsemane, Jesus submitted to his Father and prayed, not my will, but yours be done. He went to the cross. And there in a supreme demonstration of the love of God for the people of this world, he made the sacrifice, which opened up a way so that all who would receive him, who would believe in his name, could become children of God. And there on the cross, the word fulfilled its ultimate purpose. And John records that final victory cry, it is finished. The word has succeeded in the purpose for which it was sent. His work was complete. And now he sits at the right hand of the Father. So the word came and it accomplished its purpose. I've talked a bit about what that purpose is, but it's a big subject. It was a big purpose. I just want to go back and focus on one aspect of it, one that John highlights in his prologue. 
So I quoted John 6.36. For I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but the will of him who sent me. And in the next couple of verses, Jesus tells us what the will of the Father was. He says, and this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes on him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. Jesus came to bring life, and he could bring life because of who he was. He was the source of life. John 1.4, in him was life. Again, let's reach back into the Old Testament. Go back to Deuteronomy chapter 32. Take to heart all the words by which I am warning you today, that you may command them to your children, that they may be careful to do all the words of the law. For is no empty word no, for you, no empty logos, but your very life. And by this logos you shall live long in the land you are going over the Jordan to possess. These are the last words of Moses to the people of God. Words that would have been very familiar, surely, to the Jews. As Moses spoke them, he was warning the people to obey the law. But he was also speaking prophetically. Because these words find their fulfillment in Jesus. As John uses the word logos, he again links back to these familiar words of Scripture. In the logos is life, is your life. And through the logos, you will find eternal life. John 10.10, I have come that they may have life and may have it abundantly. John 10.28, I give them eternal life and they will never perish. So let's just think about that in the context of the start of John. John's saying that in the beginning was the Logos, and the Logos was life. So before anything else existed, there was life. Life came first. You see, those that reject God have got it all upside down and back to front. They say that in the beginning was nothing. Then there was matter, and then from that matter emerged life. John says, no, in the beginning was life. And from that came all that we see. It's a crucial difference. The former view goes something like this. In the beginning was nothing, and then from that nothing came matter. And out of that matter came life. Eventually that life will die out, and then there will just be matter again. One day that matter too will go, and then there will be nothing. It's a story with no hope and no future. But according to John, in the beginning was life. And out of this life came the created universe and into this universe will put people specially made to share in the life of the creator a life that will carry on forever it's a very different story as we know man abused the glorious freedom he was given he forfeited his right to life in spiritual terms he died we were cut off from the source of life like a plant cut off at the root man died And that death has been propagated to every human being that has been born since. We either were once dead or we still are dead. None of us can escape. That doesn't necessarily mean that we look dead. A plant can be cut off from the root and still look fine for a while, but it's dead all the same. And God could have left us there, but he didn't. He chose to rescue us, to give us new life. And how he did that was amazing, and it's what we've been celebrating this morning. Last week, Andrew gave us a picture of a rescue at sea. It was a good picture and I want to revisit it this morning. So this is the scene. A man is drowning and a helicopter has arrived overhead. Andrew told us that the rescue team didn't just drop a rope to that man. 
so that he could climb up. He'd be too weak to climb it. So instead, one of the team is lowered into the water. They do all the work. Connect the person to themselves, and then they're winched back up to safety. Now, the spiritual analogue is actually a little bit more desperate even than that, because the man in the water is already dead, and dead men don't climb ropes. So we needed somebody to come um, to take the initiative, to, be, to do all the work, to come right down into the water with us. And this is exactly what God did. The Word became flesh. The Creator became the created. Jesus came to us in our humanity, got right into the water with us. But just becoming a man wasn't enough on its own. Jesus identified with us right into our death. The source of life died. That's how far God was willing to go to effect our rescue. But death couldn't hold him. And he rose to life again. And the Bible tells us that if we are joined to Christ in his death, we will be joined to him in his new life. It is in union with Jesus that we can have life. Now, it's a bit late in the day to introduce a new image, but I'm going to do it anyway. Because the Bible tells us that this union with Christ is like being grafted into the vine. Now, if any of you have vines, you'll know they are great pictures of vibrant life. They can look very dead through the winter, but in the spring when the sap rises, they burst into a prolific and vibrant and fruitful life. And you can take a shoot of a vine that's been cut off, so this shoot has no life any more of its own, a shoot that will just wither and die. And you scrape a piece of the bark off of the living um, vine, and you can bind that shoot into the living vine so that the life of the vine can flow up into the shoot. And the shoot, although it has no root of its own, because it is grafted into the vine, which is the source of life, can have the life of the vine flow into it and through it. Now the vine, the shoot, can itself bear fruit and grow. And you can read all about that in John 15. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was life, and the Word has come to us. And that Word has come that we might have life in us, so that we can be grafted into the source of life. And that powerful, creative, vibrant, and fruitful life can flow through us. And this is what we were made for. We were made in the image of God so that we could have the life of the eternal God coursing through our veins. Becoming a Christian is being restored to that state. Paul reminds us that we were crucified with Christ. Then we no longer live, but Christ lives in us. So if you're here today and you don't have that new life, the offer is there. John 1.12 tells us that to all who received him, he gave the right to become children of God, to be born of God, to receive new life. It's a genuine offer. Do talk to somebody um, today. Or if you like, we've just started a course to explain more to those that are looking. Do come and see me and I will introduce you to the host of that course. For those of you who have already been grafted in, perhaps you want more of that life to flow. And if you do, there are some practical things you can do. Linking back to what I said earlier about the Bible, Jesus described his words as the bread of life. Feed on it. And as you do, ask the Holy Spirit to make it life to you. Perhaps there's sin in your life. This will inevitably damage the union between you and the vine, so the life won't flow so freely. Turn from the sin and ask for forgiveness. Jesus promised that he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. He doesn't want you at arm's length anymore. 
be reconciled and come close. But above all this morning, look to Jesus, the exact image of God, who is the word who has come to us, the word who is life, and recognize him as the source of your life. Let him fill your thinking and your doing. Draw close to him. Let that union with him be tight and strong. Let his life fill you and overflow you for his glory, for your good, and for the blessing of those around you. Amen. Amen.